Hello, welcome back to another episode of Diary of the Mad Men, the ultimate Ozzy Osbourne podcast, where we talk about everything Ozzy and Ozzy-related. I am Josh Crum. With me, as usual, is our good buddy, Dan. What's going on? Not much, man. What have you been up to? Uh, just same old shit, different day. Uh, actually, I'm getting ready to release my first solo EP, so I've been working really hard on that. That comes out September 10th. A little shameless plug right there. But, uh, you know, I'm just really pumped and excited, Josh. I think our last episode when we had Ryan on and we did the battle between Bark at the Moon and the Ultimate Sin has really, really taken off. And everybody's responses online have been wonderful. What do you think? Uh, yeah, this episode's really blown up. I think we've gotten like 300 and some Facebook likes on the post. And it's already got, you know, several hundred views online. And you know, to, to be literally just launching this podcast within the past month. Those are extremely huge numbers, and it's already starting to pay off in a standpoint of hint, hint, teaser, teaser. We have some nice guests coming on shortly that we can't discuss just yet, but we're extremely excited. So, yeah, the feedback's been great on this one. Man, you're already hitting the teaser out there. I'm, I'm impressed. You couldn't wait. Oh, I couldn't wait, man. Tease, tease. <laughs> I'm really shocked how well the ultimate sin is doing in the remarks versus Bark at the Moon. You know, me, you, and Ryan— all clearly voted for Bark at the Moon as the winner in our battle, but I'd say Ultimate Sin is holding its own, if not winning online, which shocked me. So I was five to four Bark at the Moon, and you and Ryan were six to three. Correct. Uh, but you had mentioned to me earlier that you thought the Ultimate Sin might actually have more votes online than Bark the Moon. So I went back and was kind of looking at it again without actually counting, but just kind of with the eyeball test. And I believe you're right, man. I think the online vote swings the Ultimate Sin. I'm really shocked by that, to be honest. But Ozzy was bigger in 86 than he was in 83, let's be honest. I think the Ultimate Sin blew up because of Shot in the Dark. It was a huge tour because of Metallica opening for him. And it's a more popular, bigger selling album out of the gate i can see un and understand why ultimate sin is resonates with people yeah but that's also 35 years ago so True. you know how big it was at the time doesn't mean anything when 35 years later well i think it does i'm going to disagree with you on that because i think a lot of people love stuff where they are introduced to them or reminds you of your childhood or you know there's just something about listening to music that makes you resonate more from memories oh yeah i forgot i'm speaking to a guy that was around you know, buying albums when that CD came out, that record came out. That's when the that difference. CD that's, came out, right? Exactly. That's right. Okay, you're right. I so I, I, I can see your point that yeah. if you grew up with that album, you know, you have special emotions for it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I was shocked. I, it's definitely an even tighter battle than I think you and Ryan and I realized because, like I said, the online war looks like it's swinging for the ultimate sin. And as much as we all love that album, I, that definitely shocks me a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think in retrospect, we know history has been great for Ozzy and bringing in Zach, you know, after him and Jake separated. But I can only imagine what it would have been like if Jake stayed and, and if they kept riding together. If only, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's so much we would lose. I mean, we both agree that No Rest for the Wicked is absolutely one of our favorite Ozzy albums. It got back to yes. the heavy a little bit. The tones definitely got, you know, I don't want to say darker because they were darker with Jake and Bark of the Moon, but they were darker than it was on The Ultimate Sin. Way and uh, I, I definitely like the direction he took with Zach. But, you know, Jakey Lee is such a phenomenal player. He has so much character in his playing that it's really hard to put into words how different Jake can be than most other guitar players. He just has his own thing. To know what else they could have done would definitely be interesting. But at the same time, I do like the turn they took with Zach and going back to the heavier route also. So I could live with either direction. 
Yeah, you know, you just said something real interesting. Of course, we all love Shredders, right? We love Steve I. We love Ingvay Malmsteen. I mean, those guys are exceptional talent and players. But, you know, when you really think of your favorite players, my favorite players for sure, they all have a distinct style. And, you know, like an Angus Young, right? I can hear Angus Young play or Malcolm, and I know instantly I'm listening to ACDC. But Ozzy's three main guitar players all have that. You know, Randy, Jake, and Zach, I could just hear their guitar tone, their hands, and I know exactly the guitar player. You know, I don't care if it's Red Dragon Cartel, Badlands, or Old Rat, and Rough Cut, or Ozzy, I know right away when Jake is playing. And he's got such a distinct tone. 100%. Yeah, no one sounds like Jake Uly. I mean, I think Jake even has his own sound, probably even more than Zach and Randy does, in my opinion. Zach's got a real distinct sound. Other than the squeals and thing, you know, with Zach, you hear the squeal and you kind of know, you know. Uh, I but, think rhythmically, he's got a very distinct chuggy. I could tell Zach right away. Yeah. I mean, he definitely does. And for me, Randy's sound is in his leads. He's got such a distinct lead style. That classically inspired lead playing, all Randy all day. Yeah, 100%. So big news this week, this Friday, Iron Maiden releases their brand new 17th album, Senjutsu, which is uh, tactics and strategy in Japanese. I'm pretty pumped for this. To be honest, you know, Riding on the Wall, their first single has really grown on me. And they released a new single called Stratego, which I assume is named after the game as a kid. But uh, also another Really, really good song. I am way more into this record so far than I was the Book of Souls. So I'm really excited. What about you, Josh? Stratego. I actually really like that song a lot. As I've told you in the past, and I think I've mentioned it on the show here, I'm not the world's biggest Iron Maiden fan. I think they're all right. I'm, yeah, I'm a oh. fan, but I'm just not all about them. That's but Josh I, saying that fans, not Dan. Yeah, it's Josh. I'll yeah. own up to that. But uh, I do like that song a lot. I liked Riding on the Wall okay, too. Which I, you know, even when you at first wasn't so sure about it, I no, liked it. Yeah, you liked it before I did. I'll yeah. give you credit. But it grew on me a ton. And uh, I like this one, too. So, so far, it, so far, so good. Yeah, I think it sounds pretty good. I'm kind of anxious to check the album out and uh, hear what the rest of them sound like. Yeah, in typical Maiden fashion, it's almost 82 minutes and it's only 10 songs. They had to split it up over two CDs and three vinyls. So it's definitely going to be long. Typical, the last three songs on the record are 10, 20, 12, 39, and 11, 19. So they're long songs. Yeah. So. And like you said, Book of Souls, I really didn't check it out much either. It never really caught my attention. None of the singles caught my attention or anything. So I'm with you on that. Yeah, this one definitely sounds a little bit more promising. I think it could be a pretty good record. Yeah, so super excited that comes out this Friday. And I'm sure we'll have a nice review on it next week's episode. Dan will. Yeah, I will for sure. <laughs> On top of that, you know, some more news that we've kind of we've had so much news going on lately. We've let a few things slide a little because we ended up with a little bit of time on it. But September 17th is the 30th anniversary of No More Tears. And to celebrate, uh, Ozzy and Sony are re-releasing No More Tears with the 30th anniversary edition. Uh, what's your thoughts on that? I'm super excited. Of course, I've already uh, pre-ordered it and I can't wait. It's interesting. They're going to be releasing the full demo uh, CD that they released in 91 as well, that epic release called the No More Tears Demo Sessions. So that has I Don't Want to Change the World, Mom, I'm Coming Home, Desire, Time After Time, Won't Be Coming Home, which is S-I-N, and an instrumental by Zach called Mrs. J that has never been released. So it's really interesting they're adding those extra tracks to the record and, of course, some live takes as well. Yeah, the live takes have me a little intrigued because we don't know just yet if they are the same ones that are on Live and Loud. I'll be so disappointed if they were. Yeah, it said recorded live in San Diego 92. I can confirm some of the footage on Live and Loud is San Diego. So yeah. that makes me a little bit nervous. I'm hoping those are different takes at least. 
And, yeah, I think so. And then the mom, I'm coming home. It says MTV 92. I believe this. It doesn't state it that it's San Diego, but I believe that's San Diego also. Yeah, the interesting thing, you bring up Mama Coming Home, I sent you an article this week where Zach had talked about that he originally wrote that on the piano, and it wasn't him and Ozzy did. They were, Ozzy sang the melody while Zach was on the piano, and they didn't change it to 12-string guitar until they went into the studio, and it totally transformed the song. Yeah, I'd love to hear a demo of that, just a boombox recording of that session of them in there in a room together, just kind of pounding that out. That would be something that really would sell a set like this if they would have added it on there. You know, it'd be Agreed. really awesome. I bet you it sounds a lot more Beatles inspired than the Southern rock vibe it has on record. So, yeah, it has the live versions and the Mom, I'm Coming Home. It has uh, Don't Blame Me and Party with the Animals, which are both really, really good songs. Both were the B-sides for that release. So the question is, is which version of Don't Blame Me are we going to get? Yeah, I, that's kind of a question I had also, because there's two totally distinctly different versions of that song. So Correct. I'm curious to see which one we get also. I'm thinking it's probably going to be the one that's been streaming for the past several years on the uh, expanded release that they put out a couple years back. But, which uh, is the better one. Yeah, I think that's the better one also. That's the one that was on the original single. Then they replaced it with the demo, which I don't like nearly as well. And now we've gone back to the original demo release. Yeah, and Party with the Animals is a song that, you know, I've always enjoyed that song, but you're really high on that song. And that's one I that am. you've kind of pumped up to me for the past few years that's made me appreciate a little more than I used to. So, but also coming out October the 1st, we have the Technical Ecstasy Super Deluxe Edition box set from Black Sabbath. I am totally pumped up for this one. So pumped for this. I cannot wait. Technical Ecstasy is an album that I think is going to really benefit from, one, the remaster of Disc 1. Disc 2 is going to be New Mixes, and I'm totally excited for New Mixes by Stephen Wilson. So yep, Stephen uh, Wilson of Porcupine Tree. Super excited for that. Yeah, I think that has the possibility of being really exciting. And the yeah. one thing that you and I both scream about these Super Deluxe Editions that Black Sabbath has been doing is we want more outtakes and alternate mixes. And indeed, this does include a disc of outtakes and alternate mixes. So uh, what's your thoughts on that? I know I'm excited. I'm sure you are, too. Yeah, I'm super pumped. I'm really intrigued the, which direction Stephen Wilson's going to go with this because Porcupine Trees worked with, obviously, Opeth. So he's got a lot of prog in his background, and there is a lot of prog on Technical Ecstasy. So I'm not quite surprised at all that he's doing this remix and remaster. So I think the thing I'm most intrigued about is to see which direction. Does he make it more keyboard heavy does he make it less keyboard heavy and bring up the guitars and i just can't really wait to see which direction he goes i'm always super excited i am a little disappointed there's only one outtake and that's for she's gone which is a beautiful song but most of it are alternative mixes i'm also really really excited for the live cd that they're adding and ozzy sounded really good on this tour there's a really good popular uh, bootleg from is it sweden i can't remember there's a couple of really good bootlegs on this tour so i I'm trying to I'm very excited to see where they pull the source material from. The only complaint I have is they do not have Rock and Roll Doctor on the live show and it was obviously played, but they do have All Moving Parts, Gypsy and Dirty Woman. Yeah, only nine tracks. So that's a little bit disappointing as far as, you know, there was more songs played than that. I will say Paranoid is missing and in a way that's kind of exciting because it's like you always have to do paranoid we talked about that before but they didn't and in reality in the research i've done they didn't play paranoid every night they did play it some nights they didn't play it others so the fact that it's missing isn't really all that strange it's clearly may not have been played on the source material i believe this recording is going to come from pittsburgh there is a uh 
the Lund Sweden show is what I was thinking of. It's a very, very popular bootleg. That, it, that is a very popular bootleg, but it's also an audience recording. Pittsburgh. I think, so. I think it's a. I think it's also a uh, a sound recording. A soundboard. It yeah. could be. I believe all, all moving parts is from the Fresno show. Yeah, it, I'm sh- surely it'll be a mix of a couple of different source materials, you know, on, on different songs. The one thing we can confirm for sure is they're all unreleased previously. So that's exciting because, you know, with some of the other deluxe editions, you know, it was stuff that was already on live at last. At least these are all totally new, never before released officially. The Universe, War Pigs, Gypsy, Black Sabbath, All Moving Parts, Stand Still, Dirty Women, The Guitar Solo, Drum Solo, Electric Funeral, Snowblind, and Children of the Grave. So yeah, that's a pretty fun set list. Something to look forward to. I'm just hoping they do a super deluxe edition of Never Said Die because I think there's a lot of material from those sessions that fans would definitely like to hear also. So I'm looking forward to that one, hopefully. Agreed. I think that would be awesome. You know, they were writing the record that day and recording it that night. So you think there's got to be stuff that just didn't make the sessions, right? Totally. And, and the Dave Walker material. And the Dave Walker material. I was just going to say it. And you beat me to the punch. I agree. Let's hear it. I mean, I'm not a big fan of it. Obviously, Ozzy's Junior Eyes is a thousand times better, but I'd like to hear what they did with, uh, with Dave Walker. Totally. And they probably won't release that on there. And it would be Agreed. confusing to some people who have no idea who Dave Walker is. But at the same time, it's something that would help sell that box set because that's stuff that fans have always wanted to hear. You know, I'll never understand why you do these kind of sets and put the same old stuff on there. You know, you want to put stuff that's going to draw someone to buy it. Because a lot of fans, if they've already got this material, they're not going to pay, you know, 60 bucks for the box set. And that's for the CD release. The vinyl's a lot more than that when they already yeah. have most of the material. You know, so the, the, these B-sides and these alternate versions, that's the stuff we want. I do like the live CDs. I'm, a, I'm kind of a big fan of live albums. So that's the stuff we want. But yeah, the Dave Walker demos would be, you know, be exceptional. And Never Say Die can absolutely use a remix. I think if we can remix that record, have the guitars a little bit more prominent, I think it would do wonders for that record. Yeah, there's no question. So that said, man, are you ready to move on to today's topic? Let's do this. It's going to be a fun one, man. All right, man. Today we are discussing OzFest 1997. We are also going to throw in for Dan. We're going to do OzFest 96 a little because Dan was at one of only two shows that they did for OzFest 1996. And Dan was at one of those. Dan, real quick, do you want to kind of start off with OzFest 96 and you can tell us a little bit about that experience and what that was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. So Osmosis had been out for about you know a year at this point. It came out in October of 95. So I remember specifically driving. I was actually heading to the record store as usual. And the local radio channel out here in Arizona is called 98KUPD. They do all the hard rock. That's the station I would always listen to for Aussie new stuff. And just that that was your rock channel out here, hard rock. So I was driving and this this promo comes on, Josh, and it goes like this. Are you ready for Thunder Underground? And that was the whole promo. That's badass. Of course. And I was like, whoa, well, uh, Ozzy just has a song called Thunder Underground. This has to be about Ozzy. So they ran that for about a week, that promo. It was fucking awesome. And I was like, I was just like, what the f- This has got to be Ozzy. It's got to be Ozzy. And then, boom, they announced it. The very first OzFest ever. And it was in Phoenix, Arizona. They only did two shows, Phoenix and San Bernardino, California. And that was it. That's OzFest 96. And I was so, it was like a sign from God for me that Phoenix was the first show for OzFest. It was amazing. How cool to tease that like that, though. You know, that's what's missing today from the music scene and from life in general is the patience of waiting and getting excited for something and then getting the payoff at some point. You know what I mean? Like everything is so now, now, now. An announcement like that simply couldn't be made this day and time. But you knew, and real Aussie fans knew, 
before anybody that okay something big's going on with Ozzy and Phoenix in 1996. That's right. And that's yep. awesome. Yeah, for sure. Great lineup. You know, the second stage was headlined by Earth Crisis, Power Man 5000, Cold Chamber, a band called Cellophane and King Norris. Not the greatest second stage ever, but the main stage was great. Started with Neurosis. They were real big at the time with Through Silver Eyes and Blood, I think the album was called. Fear Factory, Sepultura with Max, by the way. Fantastic fucking show. Biohazard. And then the unholy grail for me danzig slayer and headlined by ozzy it was fantastic a little disappointed with ozzy set that year to be honest only played 14 songs and six of them were black sabbath songs yeah you know that drives me crazy for a solo ozzy show it is the first time i will say this and i remember shitting my pants that i heard him do sabbath bloody sabbath live because this was before he reunited with black sabbath and the fact that he did sabbath bloody sabbath on that show amazing he also brought back goodbye to romance he did i just want you so it was a definitely a good varied set list but just way too much sabbath yeah well you know in 96 that was right after the retirement sucks tour and he did sabbath bloody sabbath on the retirement sucks tour also not when i saw him he did when i saw him in january which was pretty early on so he might have dropped it later but he did you see him january of 97 or january of 96 yeah so yeah he did not do it when i saw him there i saw him again in september of 96 it was in charleston west virginia at the charleston civic center it was weird because that wasn't really an ozfest it was just an aussie concert but on the ticket stub it said ozfest on it which i always found so odd but it was a killer lineup they had prong was there Sepultura, Danzig, and Ozzy. So for my money, for my 40 bucks that that ticket cost, that was a fucking killer lineup. I mean, I loved it. He did play Sabbath Bloody Sabbath that night. I remember one thing that sticks out to me about that show. A dude got in the rafters, and they had to do three songs worth of music while they had the lights completely on, like all the house lights completely on, and they were trying to get this dude out of the rafters. He was climbing around up there, around you know, the basketball jerseys and all the shit that hang from rafters of arenas, you know? They couldn't get him down. And I remember it was during, like, near the end of the set when Ozzy was doing a little bit of a Sabbath medley when he was doing, like, Children of the Grave and some of those Iron songs with, right. with, uh, with Joe Holmes. And That's that was right. when Danzig was promoting his Black Acid Devil album. So it was kind of a, a, an odd time for him when he was kind of transitioning into a new sound also. But seeing Sepultura and Prong, and Prong was really huge at the time with Snap Your Finger, Snap Your Neck. Love that song. And then, you know, Danzig and Ozzy. It was a fucking killer lineup, man. That was a good show. But I never understood why it said Ozfest on the ticket stub because what you saw that year shortly after that was the true Ozfest. Yeah, it was was kind of a lead up to that. So here's the the irony. So he did start with Paranoid, like we had talked about a couple of weeks ago. But looking at this set list, six songs were Black Sabbath, five were from Blizzard, and then only three other songs from the rest of his career. I just want you. Was it I Don't Want to Change the World and Mama, I'm Coming Home? No, actually, it was Mama, I'm Coming Home and Bark at the Moon. So, no, yeah, I Don't Want to Change the World. That's kind no. of, that's very hard to find these days that he didn't do yeah, that right? song. Yeah, right? Yeah, but he did do Medley with Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, Iron Man, Sweet Leaf, Children of the Grave, yeah. all back to back to back, which was probably pretty common for that Yeah, tour. that's what he did on that tour in that era. So, that was definitely killer, and uh, that was fun. That was a fun tour. That had been an awesome night, though, man. That was recorded. They did some DVD work with that, didn't they? They sure did. And then, they re- yeah, they released OzFest. DVD from that. Absolutely. 
Um, you know, I could have sworn he played Perry Mason that night too. Uh, now that my mind is there, I'm positive he did. He did because that's the that's the song that's on the DVD. That's not the song on the DVD, so it's not listed on setlist.com. Yeah. So he also add Perry Mason to that setlist. He yeah. definitely played it. He definitely played it, and we all hear it all the time when we hear the live version with Joe right. Holmes. That is from that concert. Yeah, agreed. Um, the other thing that was interesting is you mentioned Danzig. This show was before Black Acid Devil came out. And I'm a gigantic Danzig fan, too. The song sounded much better live. They had a much more hard rock metal vibe to them. So when the album came out, I was even more thrown off. It's not one of my favorite Danzig records, but the songs did sound much better live. Yeah, totally. That's the only time I've ever seen Danzig. So I was definitely excited just to see him. Uh, I saw him on uh, How the Gods Kill Tour, Danzig 3. Yeah. Fucking amazing with the classic lineup. Yeah, definitely. I definitely wish I could have seen him with that lineup. But I was totally happy just to see him when I did. And looking back, glad I did because I've never had a chance to see him since. And I've um, seen him a few times also. But now, Ozfest 97, we both attended that. I went in Columbus, Ohio. It was June the 17th, 1997. I'm assuming you went down in Phoenix? Yep, June 26, 1997, towards the end of the stop. Phoenix, most of the time, is towards the end of all tours, or it's the very beginning. It's very weird, but it seems like a lot of Aussie tours ended towards Phoenix. Yeah, well, you're close to the coast, so they're either going to start out west and move east or start out east and move west, so it kind of makes sense. Yeah. So, Ozfest 97, we are looking at, it started... And we did 21 cities, started May 24th and ended July 1st, which was actually an add-on show that I was at also that we'll get to later. That's right. You saw them twice. I saw it twice, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So the lineup for Ozfest 1997 for the second stage was headlined by Coal Chamber. If people remember, Sharon managed Coal Chamber back then. That's why Ozzy did Shock the Monkey with them. I do love that cover. Awesome. Yeah, it was a killer cover. I still listen to that pretty often. That had such a good sound to it. Uh, Cold Chamber, Neurosis, Slow Burn, Downset, Drain STH, and Vision of Disorder. So the second stage here for me is nothing that I'm really that into. Drain STH had Tony Iommi's daughter in it. I remember that was kind of a big deal back then. We'd talk about that. But other than that, not a whole lot here that I'm that into. I like Cold Chamber okay. I actually saw Cold Chamber open up for Dave Lombardo's band, Grip Incorporated, at a small, small venue way before they broke. You know, that was kind of a cool thing. That's my best memory about Cold Chamber. But I'm going to tell you, I think the second stage also not very good at all. It wasn't. But, you know, this was also the first year of the traveling Ozfest. So this was definitely the year where they were. The filler was 100 percent San Bernardino and Phoenix when you saw them in 96. That was the let's see if we can make this work. Uh, concerts for sure right so this is the first let's see if we can really travel it across the country version before it really grew into what became i mean also this became fucking massive man i don't know that people look back metalheads look back with envy of how great it was but i don't know if the world looks of music really gives Ozfest the respect it deserves like with your Lollapaloozas and all your other festivals because man you're looking at 30 dates usually 25 to 30 dates east coast to west coast or vice versa and you had this traveling i can't remember how many buses it took to travel that tour but it was like 77 buses or something crazy like that this first year at the time it was groundbreaking now looking back it isn't quite as good a lineup as what they had all the years after but at the time, when you got your ticket, and the tickets were not very expensive, they were like, I think I, I had a, a, a chair. 70, and ampi- bucks. I yeah, I don't think they were even that much. It might have been even 60 or 70. It was it was yeah. not crazy. And I think lawn seats were like 1995 or something. It wasn't yeah. expensive. And then on your main stage, we had Power Man 5000 opening up, Machine Head, Fear Factory, Typo Negative, Pantera, Marilyn Manson, and then, of course, the double headline bill of Black Sabbath and Ozzy, which is kind of confusing on who was actually headlining that, because when I saw 
thought Ozzy played first and then Black Sabbath, but all of the billing had Ozzy's name up top with Black Sabbath underneath. Yeah, very, very confusing to me because Ozzy is clearly billed as the headliner, but he opened for Sabbath. I would have preferred to see Ozzy go on last, but I understood why they did it because it was the first time he was doing a massive tour. Even though Bill was not on the tour, it was Michael Borden who also did double duty that night. But I would have preferred to see Ozzy last because it's Ozfest. But But it was the initial reunion with Sabbath, too, and that was such a big deal at the time, man. I mean, yeah, they went on to do multiple reunions after that, and of course we have 13 and everything. But at the time in 1997, you got to consider the time and place. It was so cool to see those guys back to fucking gather again. I know for me, it was all about... I mean, I was tickled to see Ozzy solo, but man, it was all about trying to see Black Sabbath just at least one time in my life because we didn't know how long it was going to last with or without Bill. You know, we knew Bill wasn't going to be there, but it was like, hey, I'll take what I can get when I can get it. And for all we knew, this would be a one and done. Fortunately for all of us, it obviously went on for another 20 years after this almost. (laughs) Unfortunately. Actually, it did go on for 20 years after this. Yeah. Um, I'm going to just piggyback on what you said earlier. For those that don't know, OzFest started because Ozzy was turned down to perform on Lollapalooza. And I know a lot of people rip Sharon and she's got a lot to be ripped on, but her business acumen is great sometimes. And this was one of her genius ideas where she basically told Lollapalooza, fuck you, we'll just do our own festival. And Jack used to help book the bands all the time. Like Jack would let her know who was cool, who was hip. So they had the hottest up and coming bands. And a lot of that was Jack because he knew what was popular on the scene, not so much what was popular from a popularity standpoint out in the media. He knew the up and coming bands that everyone else didn't know about. Yeah, I always love back in the day when they had asked Ozzy about the bands on the bill. He fucking had no idea. Never had a clue. Yeah, never had a clue. So of the main stage, I know Typo Negative sticks out for me and you both. We've discussed this before, that that was really cool to get to see Typo Negative because that's just not a band that, for me personally, was around very often. And, of course, Peter still died at such a young age that there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity to see those guys. So that was definitely a standout moment for the evening. Yeah, for me, too. So it was even more special for me because I tried to see them about a year before, and the Deftones caused a riot who were opening the show, and the concert got canceled. And Typo was about to headline and come on next, and they had to cancel, so I was fucking irate. Because I had to sit through a shit ton of shitty bands, like the Deftones, and Typo Negative never came on the stage. So I was I was tickled pink when they were added to OzFest. And I was telling you earlier today, one of my fondest memories is after Peter Steele was done playing, and just a huge, huge man, one of the lowest voices I've ever heard in my life, and he, he kind of leans into the microphone and says, for everybody that enjoyed the show, thank you. And for those that didn't, we apologize. <laughs> <laughs> It was such a great line because you just, you totally thought he was just going to be like, fuck you. Yeah. But he was not. He was like, totally epic. Yeah. It was just, he was, that was his humor though. I'm a big typo fan, man. It was a great. Yeah, me too. Yeah, they were, they were great. And they had their own sound, man. No one sounded like typo negative and no one has since really. I mean, they definitely brought their own sound to the table and they were a band that has always stood out as being different. They are a perfect blend of doom Sabbath, punk and the Beatles. And that's why nobody has ever sounded like them again, because those three very, very different vibes and feels, they encompassed all of it. They're, they're just a brilliant band. They really were. I mean, they, they definitely stood out for me. Uh, I've heard a story before of Peter, something like what you were talking about, and that apparently he was playing in, at Bogart's in Cincinnati, Ohio, which is a venue that I frequent quite often, and that Peter stopped the show and said he had to take a shit mid-show and like literally left the stage for like 10 minutes then came back but the way i was told i believe it because it sounded very similar to your story because they said he said hey guys i need a minute i gotta take a shit 
and yeah, they literally left the stage for like 10 minutes and comes back, you know, so that might actually be a true story. I kind oh, of, yeah. Kind of a similar tone. I can see that. If you look at his lyrics, they're so tongue-in-cheek, and they're great live. They sounded fantastic, too. I, I'm so grateful that I got to see them. Absolutely sounded like the CD as much as any band I've ever heard in my life, Agreed. and in a good way. It just it, The tone was so good. Their sound was good. The performance was good. Uh, we also have Pantera, who's definitely hot on the scene in 1997. Obviously, their reign was cut short with everything that happened with uh, Dimebag Daryl in Columbus, Ohio, actually, where he was murdered uh, years wow. later. But Pantera was definitely a, a shit-hot band at the time. They, I remember they put on a kick-ass set, a lot of energy. You kind of got this new guitar guy with Dimebag Daryl up there, and everybody's loving Vinnie Paul. Pantera was definitely a right band at the right time to have on Ozfest 97 because they were, again, a band that was clicking right then and who popular media might not have known a whole lot about. But in the underground worlds of metal, Pantera was definitely a volcano ready to explode. Well, I think by 97, they already had a number one record. They were already huge by this point. Listen, I, I've seen Pantera at least 10 times live. I mean, they, they played with Ozzy how many times? I've seen, I saw them open for Exodus and Suicidal Tendencies. I saw their last show when Slayer opened for them. So I've seen them a ton of times. I saw them at New Year's Evil, which is another great Ozzy Black Sabbath show that hit Phoenix, Arizona that we'll talk about someday. But this was definitely one of Pantera's better sets. They were prime Pantera. When Pantera is on, it's really, really hard to follow them live. They bring so much energy. Philip Ansamo is a brilliant front man. They're, they were fantastic. This was a great, great year for them. Yeah, I think so. And I think the slightly shorter set list probably helped them in that respect. Because I've seen Pantera several times also. And they're either really, really on or kind of not on. And it really all de depended on feel. And I think where they had a shorter, I bet they're set. I'm just, I honestly don't have it written down here in front of me. It was probably about I 40 minutes. I have it up. I could tell you what they played. Okay, that'd be great. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they played Cowboys from Hell, A New Level, Walk, Becoming, Five Minutes Alone, Sandblasted Skin, Domination and Hollow, This Love, and they end with my favorite Pantera song, Fucking Hostile. So, nine so, yeah. songs. Nine so, songs. that's about 40 minutes, maybe 45, yeah. right? And yeah. I think Phil tended to talk too much. And he would talk a whole lot in between songs, and it would really irritate the band at times. You could see it. And I've even seen them live to where Dimebag and Vinnie Paul would just cut him off and go into a song mid-sentence when he was just rambling about whatever to the crowd. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag. Josh is a huge Marilyn Manson fan, much bigger than me. I've seen him live a few times. He was, he was solid when I saw him. I love his shtick. He's a great stage performer. Matter of fact, I have a vivid memory of this show from this tour where he had a nipple ring and he wound up tearing it out. I oh. was fucking bleeding all down his stomach. It was it was actually disgusting. That is but, awful. It hurts so bad. <laughs> but yeah. it's it's a distinct memory I have from this. One hundred percent. You know, weirdly, at Ozfest '97, uh, Marilyn Manson didn't play his entire set. He uh, after about seven songs or so. He got upset by something, and you know, in the fan, in the stands, you never knew exactly what was under his skin. And he turned around and threw his his uh, mic stand through the drums, and walked off no. the stage. Yeah, and where was this in, in, in Columbus, Columbus? The show I was at. Yeah, he played about seven songs. I think he played nine or ten everywhere else. Well, you well, just heard Pan I have this, he played I have twelve songs. Yeah. Well. yeah, he played seven songs. I think in Columbus, threw his mic stand through the drums. And walked off the stage. And everyone was kind of like, what the hell was that? What happened? You know, it was the strangest thing. And it ended that abruptly. And the, even the band was kind of standing there for a second like, what the fuck? You know? 
that was only a lead up to what was happening later in the night, which we'll get to shortly. So for me, my big memory is in The Beautiful People, he added a clip of Baby, You're a Rich Man, which is a fucking fantastic Beatles song. So, of course, that sticks with me. Marilyn Manson, I'm not a huge fan of his music. I'm going to be perfectly honest, and I'll own that. I do enjoy seeing him, though, because he is a performer. Oh, 100%, especially it, it back in that era. Right. In the early, He's a shell of himself early 2000s, now. 1990s, Manson really, really went for the big show, like Slipknot and Kiss, that big performance. He's kind of like that slide in the last few years. I wish he would get back to that. But yeah, he was he was definitely one to see back then. And like I said, he was the hot topic on everyone's TV stations back then also. So he was having him there really was paramount for Ozzy to make a statement with OzFest and have this guy who everyone else is afraid to have. For when I saw OzFest uh, 97, then up next was Ozzy. Ozzy played a 10-song set. Very, very paint-by-the-numbers Ozzy set. Again, fucking half of the set was Blizzard of Oz. He did I Don't Know, Goodbye to Romance, Mr. Crowley, Suicide Solution, and Crazy Train. He did two Off No More Tears, I Don't Want to Change the World, and Mama, I'm Coming Home. He played Bark at the Moon. I think they played about equal time, maybe 50, 55 minutes for Ozzy, an hour for Sabbath, would you say? I would say it's about 50-50, about honestly, like literally 50 minutes for each. I don't think, I don't think either set crossed an hour. I would be shocked. So about 50 minutes I, each. I do think, you know, looking back at it, I Just Want You was awesome. Flying High again is hit and miss, you know, on his live set. So looking back at it, those two were very cool live. But at the so time, it's goodbye to romance still. And goodbye to romance has hasn't been played in a long time now. So yeah, well, looking yeah. back, that was a good one also. But at the time, like you said, those were very paint by the numbers. He had been doing I Just Want You ever since Osmosis had came out, just you know, two years earlier. Flying right. High again had been in the set since 1981, right? So really, there was nothing very shocking about the set list. It was kind of like you said, paint by the numbers. It was a chance to see Ozzy's solo band, solo act. You know, if, you, if you're seeing him for the first time, you get to hear Crazy Train and Bark at the Moon. But at the same time, Sabbath is backstage waiting to come out also. And I remember being 17 years old and being there and just thinking, how fucking cool is this, man, to see Ozzy and Black Sabbath in the same night? Like, it was such a cool idea to sell this festival, to do a, really a Black Sabbath reunion. But not only that, you're going to get Ozzy solo also because, you know, Ozzy... Let's be clear. He makes it clear. If you ever watched, I know we talk about the Osbournes on here that that's not really something we want to discuss. Ozzy made it clear on that show a few times. There was a few snippets where he said, they fired me. And he didn't want to promote some certain things for Black Sabbath because that was their thing. And Solo's his thing. I'll do a Sabbath reunion, but I'm not leaving my guys behind either. I have a solo career that, you know, I'm more concerned with. And I thought the idea of having them both was simply spectacular. Yeah, it was probably one of the most excited I've ever been for a show, to be honest, because you knew you're going to get two Aussie, two Aussie sets. And to give the guy credit, I don't think he ever lost his voice for the shows on the ones I went to. And I felt like he held up just fine uh, on the back end of the Sabbath set. Yeah, that was a really good tour. So let's move on to Sabbath. So Sabbath plays a little bit shorter set. I know I was reading, you know, doing some research for the podcast where Tony Iommi had commented that he wasn't happy with the short set. I think Tony wanted to play a little bit longer than, than Ozzy did solo. So Sabbath, they opened with War Pigs, then in, Into the Void, Sweet Leaf, Iron Man, Embryo into Children of the Grave, Black Sabbath, Fairies Wear Boots, and Paranoid. So that, you know, to be fair, that's a very paint-by-numbers set also it from is. Black Sabbath. But then again, Except- when you've not seen a band ever, those are the songs you kind of want to hear. So I was kind of cool with it at the time. So it was for me, and this is what my, this is going to be funny because it's such a paint by the numbers song, but seeing Into the Void on this show 
was definitely my mind melting experience because that I'd never seen that live. I'd never heard of them playing it live. That was very shocking for me. Just the fact that into the void was in the set list. That was a huge deal. That's when I get a little frustrated when people complain about the Sabbath, when Sabbath was touring a lot that, Oh, into the void again, into the void again. That was, that was a moment like a life altering moment for me to see that live for the first time. Totally. I remember not the same thing, but different. When I saw the set listing for the reunion CD for the first time and Dirty Women was on there and I fucking tripped shit. I remember I was in the middle of right. Food City reading a hit parade or a metal ledge or something. And it had the, tr the track listing for that show. And I couldn't believe they were doing Dirty Women. Well, of course, every Sabbath show they did after that had Dirty Women in it. But at that time and place, they I had never seen them play that song live. I knew they did it on the album tour and maybe for the Never Say Die tour, maybe. But, you know, it wasn't a, a set list staple that I would think of for Black Sabbath. So you know, I can see where you get excited for Into the Void as I did for Dirty Women on the reunion album. Yeah, for sure. And I was also very, very excited for uh, Dirty Woman. I mean, just behind the wall of sleep. We're, we'll do a reunion uh, show sooner than later. But this is a very paint by the numbers. Even Fairies Wear Boots was exciting. I mean, when was the last time we heard Fairies Wear Boots live? 1983, when he played it at the Us Festival with Jake? Totally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then before that, you know, you're looking at, you know, Speak of the Devil. So, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, we look back at it now and think, eh, you know, paint by numbers. But, you know, obviously Iron Man, War Pigs, Children of the Grave, Paranoid. Ozzy did a lot in his solo career. You know, Sweet Leaf was cool. I don't think he was playing Sweet Leaf that much at that point either. Yeah, so, I mean, looking back at it, hindsight's definitely 2020 and things change you know like we said at the time i just want you wasn't that cool for the solo set but you look back and go oh that's cool they did i just want you because he didn't do it any tour since right you know maybe exactly. maybe one tour of japan in 98 with zach i think they did it but you know what i'm saying right. yeah. so yeah you look back and kind of realize okay that was a cooler moment goodbye to romance like you mentioned earlier that's a song that if he broke out today people would go nuts for it. he's not done it in 20 years you know yep so yeah you look back at them differently so I saw this concert June the 17th, 1997 in Columbus, Ohio, like I said earlier, which if fans will recall, that is the infamous night that Ozzy and Black Sabbath did not perform. You know, we were out there in the damn hot sun all day long, literally waiting for Ozzy the entire day. And it was so weird because Marilyn Manson played, and like I said, he cut his set short when he threw his mic stand through the drums. So there was a weird vibe already, like, what's going on with Manson? That was strange. And then the next thing we know, we're waiting on Ozzy, and Philip Anselmo walks out and he starts talking. But, you know, if ever you've been to a concert, especially those outdoor shows, it's hard to understand someone's speaking voice when they're trying to talk to the crowd. We really couldn't tell what he was trying to say. And the next thing we know, he says, is it all right if we jam for you guys? And we're kind of like, yeah, whatever. And Ozzy's right, band comes life. out. Yeah, so he's got, he's got you know, Joe Holmes over there and Rob Trujillo, Mike Borden and John Sinclair on the keyboards. Right. And they start ripping I Don't Know with Phil and Selmo singing. Well, the crowd goes fucking nuts. We're like, man, we thought this is OzFest. This is something cool they're going to do every night. We didn't know that we were having a different night than everyone else on the tour was going to have, right? Right. So they ripped through I Don't Know. And Phil done a cool job. It was fun. It was like, okay, that's good. And then go out of that one, they go right into Mr. Crowley. And Burton C. Bell from Fear Factory sung that one. And Phil and Selmo kind of sung it together. So by this point, and this is why we're doing this show, guys, is Josh was lucky enough to be, or unlucky enough, to be at the Columbus show where Ozzy didn't perform and, and all these different artists kind of performed Ozzy songs. By the time the keyboard intro starts on Mr. Crowley, are you still like, oh, this is fucking great? Or is there something in the back of your mind going, 
this ain't right. Something's going on here. When the keyboard starts from Mr. Crowley, we still were thinking this is fucking great. Okay. Because we knew you had this double set for Ozzy and Sabbath, and man, now they're doing this band jam with Ozzy's band. Like, you know, this is pre-popular internet where you knew set lists and shit before you went to a concert. You know what I'm saying? So we just thought this was something cool awesome. they were doing. Bert and C. Bell and Phil and Selma doing Mr. Crowley, and the crowd's still like, yeah, this is great, you know, and... Then they get through that one, and Phil talks a little bit, and like I said, you can't really understand a word he says. He's got such a deep voice anyway. Then they start ripping into Suicide Solution. And who sings that one? Again, Phil Anselmo and Burton C. Bell are kind of singing those two. There's dudes hanging around the stage, though, like Peter Steele was out there, and Dimebag was walking around and just, like, drinking beer and, like, saluting the crowd and shit and stuff like that. So, like, there's people hanging out on stage. But these two guys are primarily taking the reins of singing these first few songs and the dude from machine head what was his name he, he sung someone suicide solution also i believe was the one the, the three of them sung suicide solution they would just trade off literally like passing the microphone around like and missing half the lyrics just fucking goofing just off having, having fun, fun. Right. just goofing like drinking, off drinking on stage i can imagine they're literally sitting around a campfire right yeah. with like twenty thousand people around them you know, jamming Aussie songs and oh we were loving it, man. And and Aussie's band are playing these songs like to the T the way they would if Aussie was out there with them. Like they're note right. for note, Joe's just shredding everything. Well, then it kind of started taking a little bit of a turn for the worse because fans started going, Okay, we've been at this for about fifteen minutes now. Where the fuck is Aussie? And bootlegs do exist of this. I actually have one and you can hear the crowd start chanting Aussie after Suicide Solution. It's kinda of like, What the fuck? You know, where's right. Aussie at? Well then something that for me I'll always cherish and keep personal and something that really meant a lot Marilyn Manson came out and did Crazy Train and dude yeah, that had to he be fucking, huge fucking tore it up it was did so really? fucking good oh my god it could was he, so good could he actually hit that chorus he fucking hits the chorus it was so good man one thing he did that really stood out too that was so the little thing but you know it, it normally goes through two bars before Ozzy starts singing on the on the verse you know Manson sure. let it go through four bars and it nice. was just, it, it always kind of stuck out and it was kind of cool and the band followed him with it they didn't he you know up. <laughs> right yeah totally yeah and right. he was he did the first verse spectacular killed the verses like in a good way just destroyed it now I will say the second verse he kind of forgot the lyrics and he was kind of mumbling around on the second verse a little. I don't Ozzy's teleprompter was out there. I don't know why none of the guys wanted to use the teleprompter. Right, I would have. And then the third verse he came back in and he knew he knew the third verse real well. He absolutely slayed it, man. I would love to have some good quality recording of that, be it video, audio. Got to be somewhere, man. I do have a bootleg that's okay. Okay. But man, he really done a good job on that one and. But still yet, the crowd is starting to really turn because it's like, this ain't cool. Like, what's going on? Like, why is Ozzy not fucking singing Crazy Train? Right. So by the time Marilyn Manson gets out, is Phil, did Phil leave the stage at this point? No, they're all still hanging out. Okay. They're, so all, they're still all still hanging, hanging out. out. But at this point, if they're playing Crazy Train, something's off because you know for a fucking fact Ozzy would perform Crazy Train. Exactly. If Ozzy right. does one solo song tonight, he's doing Crazy Train, right? Right, right. Well, then Phil kind of addresses the crowd again. You can't understand a word he says. And the band starts playing Bark of the Moon. Now, you know at this point, shit is getting ready to go awry because there's no way Ozzy's not doing Crazy Train and Bark of the Moon in his solo set, right? Right. Dimebag Daryl took the reins for Bark of the Moon <laughs> and sung Bark of the Moon to the crowd. That which had to be horrible. Looking back is one of the funniest things, man. Right. It was fucking awful, but dude, it was cool as shit, too. You know what of I mean? Like. He's just screaming, at the moon. you know, just fucking being dime. 
it says online that Peter Steele sung some of that one. I don't really. I, re, I remember him being out there. I don't really recall him singing. I think he might have done like the Bark at the Moon line or something. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like sang in, into a mic. Yeah, and like Dimebag probably walked over to him and like put the mic between them or something and some shit right. like that. You know what I mean? But it was definitely memorable as fuck. Just as a side note, though, I would fucking love to hear Peter Steele sing Bark at the Moon. Oh, dude. Yeah. Like, really do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but all the songs were pretty good. I mean, like, Phil and Selmo done a good job, and Burton and Bell, they all done, they all done fine. I mean, they're pros, you know what I mean? And these are songs right. they've sung their whole life. They know these songs. Can well, I just complain real quick before yeah, man. we talk about what, what ensues? Even in this, four out of the five songs are from Blizzard of Oz. 100%. <laughs> I just had to point that out. And the other is Bark the Moon. 100%. No doubt about it. So then Phil addresses the crowd again. And like I said, we just simply couldn't understand anything he was saying. So how so far are you from the stage at this point? I had a seat. You know how amphitheaters are. You have the seating area, then you have the lawn. Right. And some amphitheaters have little seating, big lawn. And some have big seating, little lawn, right? Right. Pol- uh, Polaris Amphitheater in Columbus, Ohio was where this was. It was more Big seat, little lawn kind of venue. Okay. So I had a seat about halfway up the seating aisle. So if you see the seats, then the stage, I was kind of in the middle. Okay. So I had a good spot. And I was stage left. So I was over by Joe. And I had a good seat. Phil addresses the crowd. And then all we really understood him was saying, good night. <laughs> and the crowd <laughs> is like, what the fuck? Because we've been in this 100-degree-feeling weather all day long waiting on Ozzy. And let's be clear. If anyone ever went to Ozzy, you know what I'm talking about. You enjoy every band there, but you can't fucking wait for Ozzy the whole damn day. At least I couldn't. Of course not. You're waiting for Ozzy all day long. The place went fucking berserk. They start chanting, bullshit, bullshit. Because we had no explanation. The lights come on, have a good night, drive home safe kind of thing. And it's like, what the fuck? Because so, we felt like no one even told us what was going on. When in reality, I, I think Phil did. We just couldn't understand him. This is what I would consider probably why it even got more escalated. There's twenty thousand people there waiting to see Ozzy perform with Tony Iommi and Geezer Butler. In how many years? Right. Since 1985, 12 yeah, years. Since, yeah. Well, and who fucking saw them in Live Aid? Really? Exactly. Since 1978. That had to be like your biggest disappointment. Correct. For sure. You know, we're all just like, you know, we're left with no explanation. Like the night's over and we never saw Ozzy. Crowd starts chanting Ozzy like crazy. Ozzy, Ozzy. And, you know, then back to bullshit. Then back to Ozzy. Then back to bullshit. And you you can feel it physically. I was only 17 years old, man. You could feel that shit ramping up real quick. Next thing I know, I look around and there's dudes beside of me taking their legs and just kicking the cup holders off the chairs. Oh, shit. Just kicking, just breaking those fucking plastic cup holders off. So as a 17-year-old boy, what do you think I did? You I, participated. I kicked and broke off a plastic fucking cup holder on a chair. you damn right. The crowd is just kind of roaring. And then you look to the back behind us, and you know how those amphitheaters always have those, like, wooden fences around them? You know, right. around the lawn? That fence is just shaking, man. They're pushing that fence, pushing that fence. Crowd starts chanting, tear it down, tear it down. Crashed. The whole fence just starts getting ripped into shreds, just torn down, torn down, torn down. People are still kicking chairs, breaking shit off the chairs, chanting bullshit. And I'm going, this is some crazy shit right now. Like, what the fuck has happened so quick? Were you you nervous yet? Or were you still like, fuck yeah, let's tear the motherfucker down? I didn't. I honestly don't think I was either. I was just kind of like, holy shit, this is happening right now. It was like like slow motion for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, dude, this is happening like... We're getting ready to fucking riot in this place. 
Right. And then the next thing I hear is the crowd's chanting, burn the wall, burn the wall. Buddy, minutes later, that fucking wall was up in flames. Just piles in the, in the lawn of, of that fucking wall. People just fucking setting that shit on fire. So by this point, did anyone come on stage and tell you to calm down yet? No. Okay. As a matter of fact, I don't believe anyone ever did. What? Uh-uh. I read later, I don't know if this is totally true, but I heard Pantera went backstage and started devouring shit backstage and destroying things in the locker room. I don't know if that's true. I've read they did 30000 worth of damage in the back. Wow. Maybe maybe Rock and Roll Wives Tales, I don't know, but it may be true also because I can see those guys doing that. We start to kind of exit. The next thing we know, we look up and there's like helicopters circling the venue and stuff like that, like police helicopters and stuff. So we're like, all right, it's probably time to get out of here before this shit gets too crazy. Like, we don't want to get hurt. So it's like me and my brother and a few of my buddies. And my brother's a few years older than I am. And we start leaving. And as we're leaving, dude, SWAT teams are coming in, like in full fucking riot gear. I have always kept ticket stubs as memorabilia. I got them going back all the way to the 80s. I threw all mine away. Oh, dude. Yeah. Wouldn't you like to have that Ultimate Sin Tour ticket stub now? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But luckily for me, I always kept that stuff. But I thought, man, that really sucks for people who have lost it or threw it away. But the, what they ended up doing was they came back at the end of the Ausfest 97 and added a date on July the 1st. And you would present your ticket stub at the gate and get in. But now, to be honest, while I said it was shitty, I will say the place was packed. You kept your ticket stub. So I, you I did have mine. Yeah. It was the same two, exact seat. It was two weeks later to the day. And you go to your same exact seat. You would use whatever's on your ticket stub. So two weeks to the day later, they're back in Columbus and Neurosis opened up. They had them up there with them. And it was just Neurosis, Ozzy Osbourne Solo, and Black Sabbath. The interesting thing that I've read since, I didn't even realize at the time. I was only 17 years old. Right. And I think it would have been my third time seeing Ozzy. I believe I had seen him, like I mentioned earlier, with Danzig, September of 96. And then my first time was January of 96. That would have been my third Ozzy concert. I didn't realize it at the time, but Shannon Larkin played drums on those for both Ozzy solo and for Black Sabbath that night. And I didn't even realize it at the time. Shannon Man, Larkin is huge. the drummer for Godsmack now. Huge. He was the drummer for Wrathchild America, which is where I know him from originally. I wonder why Michael Borden couldn't make the show. No idea. No idea. You know, that was actually post-tour because they did finish the tour first before they came back. So I'm thinking Michael probably had plans that was already in stone. Any drummer is going to jump at that chance to play one night with Black Sabbath and Ozzy. So, and Shannon probably I, made a lot of money that night. And you don't remember the them dropping a beat or, or being exceptional, just not nothing memorable about the drumming? I, I was young. I was only 17, and like I said, it was only my third Aussie concert, my first Sabbath. So but I don't recall anything unusual. Like, I did not notice that it really wasn't even Mike Borden, to be honest with you, at the time. And I didn't know who Mike Borden was. I mean, the first time I saw Aussie was Randy Castillo and Geezer. And then the right. second time, it was Mike Borden and Trujillo, and I was kind of like, who the fuck are these guys? Like, I didn't know. Right. I was expecting to see Geezer and Randy Castillo because, like again, pre-internet being so prevalent, I didn't know there was a change. So I expected those guys. And, you know, it was Mike Borden and Trujillo for the night when Ozzy No showed that played with, you know, Phil Anselmo and Dimebag and, and all those guys, Manson and all those guys. But I didn't even notice that it wasn't Mike Borden. But it was the same set as everyone else saw. They fucking killed it. It was an excellent night. And, you know, the, Ozzy did apologize I've heard several different stories since of what happened that night. My most believable story, you know, they said at the time that Ozzy was sick, but I I had heard stories of bomb threats, that there was bomb threats that night. And if that's really? actually why they didn't come out. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've heard that since, that that's kind of what happened, that there was uh, sincere cases of bomb threats and that they just thought it best not to 
not to bring Ozzy out that night. I don't, and that could not be true at all. The only reason I doubt it is because Tony was at the show. You know, they wanted Tony to go out and announce to the crowd that Ozzy couldn't play because he had lost his voice. And he told them, you got no chance of that happening. Really? So, you know, I've never yeah. heard that before. Interesting. Yeah. I can't imagine Tony would be there if there was bomb threats. And yeah, stuff, Tony would have been out. They thought Tony would be the guy that would be able to calm the crowd down because it's Tony fucking Iommi. Right. But he, he refused to go out. He's like, fuck that. So Pantera did it. Phil did it. Interesting. Yeah, I've never heard that. That's that's cool. Thanks for adding yeah. to my story. Yeah, I, yeah, I definitely had never heard that. But, you know, it, it made it more memorable. Looking back at it, I wouldn't change a thing because, A, the band jam with the fucking, with Manson and Burton C. Bell and Phil and Simbo and Dybeck, that was fucking awesome. That's never going to happen again. Didn't happen before. Like you said, one in a million shot of seeing that. Living through the riot was awesome. I mean, that's a story that here we sit 25 years later and I'm telling the story. That was, looking back at it, that was cool as shit too. I still have that piece of memorabilia. I've I've, I've kept on to that memory. And then Sabbath came back and Ozzy came back and they made it right. They played a kick-ass set. July the first. Was it the same set? It was was the same set. Yeah, the same set we discussed for Ozzy and for Sabbath. You know, it's a cool night. It's 18 songs that Ozzy performed, which is a hell of a set. Yeah, I mean, he played almost a solid two hours between between the two. So yeah, I'll tell you another funny story that night. I never forget. There was a girl sitting in front of me, and she wasn't there for Ozfest, but she was there when they came back. So she had someone's ticket stub, I guess. I remember I was I was like I was like 17, you know, and I was kind of like checking her out, you know. And we would kind of, like, we didn't talk much, but we would a little, you know, like throughout the right. show. And during Sweetleaf, this chick walks up and grabs my face, son, and lays it on me like you wouldn't believe. Are you serious? Shit, yeah, man. I was friggin' in heaven for that moment. Like, That's sweet- a fucking memory. 17-year-old <laughs> Josh Crumb. So when they say what was the best song that night, it was Sweetleaf, by golly. Because... <laughs> I can tell you, and it's so funny that I can remember stuff like that, you know? Like, I remember it was Sweet Leaf. Right. But I remember I, she was checking me out, and I was like, she's up to something. And she just laid it on me, man. And I was like, this is a perfect day for Black Sabbath right here, you know? It ended up being awesome, and it was a, definitely a memorable night. And, you know, a good Ausfest. Like I said, looking back, the uh, the second stage, you know, wasn't the greatest. But it was like very we said, underwhelmed. But like we said, it was filling. They were trying to see. It was a filler to see how this tour would work. One quote that I found online from Geezer, the whole tour was like the morbid tour. Right. It was a funeral on wheels. Everyone was wearing black. I can confirm that. Anyone that's ever been to OzFest can confirm that 100% because everyone definitely wears black. So I do have a question for you. When you went back two weeks later, was there still remnants of the damage or was it all cleaned up like nothing happened? It was cleaned up. And here's what was great. And this is guys, I'm glad you asked me this question, Dan. It was cleaned up and they already had a new fence up. Wow. That quick. But it was neat because you would go in and look up and be like, oh, new fence. (laughs) Like the whole (laughs) pavilion was lined with new fencing. Look, you got to have that fence up there if you want to have shows. And this is Polaris Amphitheater is a big venue in Columbus, Ohio is a big city. They have shows there almost every night. I mean, I remember we'd sit between bands and they would always do the little promos for the shows coming up. They had something every night. So they had to get that shit fixed ASAP. Yeah, they had the, the new fencing up. Now, the chairs were still broken. The uh, the cup holders and the chairs were still broken. But they did okay. fix that by the next year. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so it was cool. Definitely a fun memory and something I was excited to share with you guys. Something I'll always carry with me, man. It ended up being a very special night. I mean, I can 
without even hesitating, I can tell you, June 17th, 1997 was the day that I went to OzFest for the first time. And that was my experience. And it was definitely one to behold. And it's as memorable as yours was for 96 being, you know, the Desert Sky Pavilion show that we still see on video from time to yeah. time. So that's kind of cool also. Like Dan said earlier, the feedback from the Battle of Bark of the Moon and the Ultra Scene has been excellent. We've been all week long. We try to reply to everybody. We definitely want to hear from everyone. And we do want your feedback. And we do want to talk to you. But reach out to us. Let us know about OzFest. Let us know what you thought about this lineup. Let us know if you went. Let us know your memories. Let us know if you were in Columbus. You might have been there with me. There was 20-some thousand other people there with me that night. Let us know if you were there. Let us know if you went back and seen them on July the 1st when they came back and made the show up. Or at the first OzFest show in, in 96. All right, guys, but until next time, let's keep it heavy. Do I sound a little bit more echoey today? No. Okay. Weird. I mean, you're always real echoey, so what's the matter? Ah, fuck off. <laughs> I'm not the one who's so far away. Any Godsmack fans in the house? Yeah. Okay. I love Godsmack. I do Shocking. too. You know, they were down here at that little arena we have down here I was talk- talking to you about. I've had Godsmack twice, John, probably. At least once, I know of it. I'm going to say twice. But yeah, that wow. last time they came, they played the fucking wizard. I swear to God. Oh, that's so yeah, cool. man. And when they ended it, they played uh, the drum intro to Over the Mountain to end the song, which I thought was That's fucking badass. Yeah. And I'll tell you something else. Dwight Yoakam. You know who Dwight Yoakam is? I love some Dwight Yoakam. Love Dwight Yoakam. It's my favorite country singer. Not mine, hey, but there are some if songs you, out there. If you drive from my house to John's, Dwight Yoakam was, grew up in between us. Yeah. That's where he's That's from. That's so cool. I didn't know he was from Kentucky. Yeah, he's from Pikeville. So... um God you know damn, I, mean? I think that's that. All of Justified takes place in there, I think. That's Harlan. Harlan, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I could have sworn they mentioned Pike. Harlan. Too. Oh, there's a Pineville next to Harlan. Uh, yeah, that's what you're thinking of. But, uh, oh, I was watching, um, they were on fucking, remember that show? Austin, it's still on TV, I think. Austin, Austin City Limits. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The I believe it was that. that. I swear I believe it was Dwight Yoakam. I could be wrong. But they were playing, and the fucking band ended the song and did the fucking. In the fucking song, in a Dwight Yoakam tune, and I came out of my fucking skin, and I got, I got the DVR thing so I can rewind. I watched it like eight fucking times. I'm like, I just saw Dwight Yoakam's band play "Over the Mountain" to end this song. (laughs) It's so fucking iconic. How fucking cool was that? And like, I I was just blown away by that. Blown away. But uh, I done an awful. Hold on. That was better. There we go. A little, uh, was about to say. <laughs>